everybody. It's Allie, and welcome to our YNR chat for Sunday, June 2nd, 2019. I have to start out by giving a big old shout out to YNR chatter Zoperplex, who predicted last week that Esther was the one who shot Adam, and I think you're right. Esther and Adam came face to face at the coffee house this week. She sees him, looks stunned, and he looks at her, and all he says is, we'll catch up later. Hmm, we'll catch up later. I'm assuming that they are going to catch up later, probably because he knows that she knows that he knows that she shot him. <laughs> and they both know that they're both covering it up. The question is why? I don't know why Adam would be choosing to cover up for her. But at the tail end of Friday's show, Adam receives yet another mystery phone call. From yet another mystery person letting him know that Chloe Mitchell has been found. She's still alive. And oh, Adam looked angry. He tells the person on the phone that they need to tell him everything right now. And the look on his face was scary. I'm assuming that he's going to want to track her down. So there we have it. I mean, I think Esther shot Adam and Adam uh, maybe possibly already had some kind of clue that Chloe was still alive, had someone check into it, and he is going to track her down. I don't know, maybe even try to pin the actual shooting on her. I am not sure. All I know is now Adam knows that Chloe is still alive, and I wonder how Adam is going to feel when he finds out that dear old dad actually helped Chloe fake her own death. I wonder what that's going to do to their little arrangement. Victoria tells Victor all about Adam's demands, every single last one of them. And Victor, in response, really doesn't even blink an eye. In fact, he laughed in Victoria's face. And he wonders why his other children hate Adam. What would Victor have said if... Nick or Victoria were blackmailing Adam for money and custody and all this other convoluted stuff. What would he say if those roles were reversed? He probably would have disowned Nick and Victoria for doing that to Adam. For a few months anyway, or until he needed someone else to run the company. But why the double standard? It's so very clear who Victor's favorite child is. Or Victor needs him for something else right now, and I don't know. It seems like Victor and Adam are in cahoots. It was odd. Adam asks Victor, after all of this blows up, I mean, Victor doesn't even care that Adam is wanting all this money and making all of these wild demands. Adam focuses in on Chelsea and tells Victor that if he helps him get Chelsea and Connor and Christian back, like to be his family, then Adam will agree to stay in town. You help me get my family back, including the child that's with your other son, and I'm all yours. I'm all yours, he says. I'm all yours. I'm, I'm sorry, but never in a million years would the Adam Newman that I remember ever pledge his loyalty in an I'm all yours 
way to Victor Newman ever again. Victoria is preparing for battle with Adam when she should be busy preparing for her not engagement, not wedding party. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know where Victoria's head is these days, but she and Billy did give us that lovely shot of the Genoa City night skyline uh, at Genoa City makeout bluff overlooking the town. They definitely did use that bluff for a little making out. I mean, I love that. Thank you so much. Uh, Victoria is, though, feeling very, very proud of herself and making Billy feel very turned on by her. By her ability to just be a little sneaky and sort of mildly strategic when it comes to Adam, I don't know what she's so proud of herself for. She gets into Nick's cell phone rather easily, finds Chelsea's phone number, and then goes to make a deal with Adam to just get him to leave town. So in response to Adam's three demands. She immediately gives in to one of them. Just, here's Chelsea's phone number. No further negotiation needed. Just, here you go. And then she offers him $50 million as opposed to the $500 million that he asked for. So, okay, she's, she's, she's getting a discount. <laughs> Rather proud of herself for that. Uh, and then she just doesn't give in to the third demand and, and tells Adam that Christian is Nick's kid, always will be. He better forget it. He's not going to get him. And Adam's response to this, response to Victoria, is to basically agree to nothing. And then he just takes Chelsea's phone number like, yoink, thanks so very much. See you later. Get out of my office, which is Victor's office. And then Adam kind of shuffles over to Victor's window and gazes out of it and picks up his phone and goes to dial Chelsea's phone number. But it goes directly to voicemail, and it's kind of a nondescript voicemail. It's not her voice. It's just a, a robot machine. And in this moment, he realizes that, oh, yeah, actually, I can't just leave a voicemail. Uh, it's not a... Exactly like I can say, hey, babe, it's me, Adam, I'm alive. So he decides to go to Sharon for help. Remember Sharon, the person who last week he told to just leave him alone and go away? Oh, but now he needs something from Sharon? Okay, okay, I see. I see what's going on here. Adam goes to Sharon and asks her to call. Chelsea and give Chelsea the Adams Alive update. But again, Chelsea doesn't answer the phone, so Sharon leaves a message like, hey, it's me, girl who tried to expose your secrets before you left town, so you bashed me over the head with a coffee pot. Could you give me a call back? I got something to talk to you about. <laughs> Chelsea actually called Sharon back? I, I'm, I'm surprised. I, I wasn't expecting that. I was just expecting to see Chelsea's face. I'm looking forward to hearing what Chelsea has to say for herself. And more importantly, I do want to see what Chelsea is looking like these days. How's the hair? How's the face? How's the bod? Has she been working out a little extra in preparation for some dreamy, steamy lovemaking scenes with Adam or are we leaving that all up to Sharon now? Good Lord. <laughs> Adam lies down for a nap this week and has an out-of-body experience where his body is getting very reacquainted with Sharon's body. And Sharon is also telling him <laughs> that he just has so much love inside of him <laughs> that maybe 
just maybe, he has enough love for Chelsea and her. Hmm, yes. Adam just has so much love inside of him. Just so much love to give. <laughs> it's not enough for any one woman. I mean, there's enough love to go around. So, <laughs> while Dream Sharon and Adam are kissing and making love on the couch, in reality, Sharon and Ray are kissing and making love in her bed. It, it was an interesting juxtaposition last week. We saw Adam having his dream with Sharon while Ray is having reality with Sharon. It's like YNR is giving the fans best of both worlds here. Can't decide which is the hottest couple? Eh, let's give the viewers both. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you very much, YNR. I mean, Thanks, <laughs> making everybody happy. But I will say my dollar is still going into the tip jar for Sharon and Ray. That's my current preference. And I would like to know this week, what is your current preference? That's our poll question this week. Who's bringing the better heat for you? Are you liking the Sharon and Ray? Or are you liking the Sharon and Adam? We saw them both this week. So who was giving you a little bit more panting? <laughs> Go to yrchat.com, cast your vote, and let me know who you think is the hottest couple, the hottest man for Sharon. Nick asks Ray to work as head of security for Dark Horse. Sort of a JT-esque type job. Was it JT head of security at Newman? And now Ray has a similar job at Dark Horse. I just hope he doesn't have a similar fate. And also, primarily, Ray's duty is not so much to be keeping an eye on the company. It's more so to be keeping an eye on Nick's sneaky no-good brother. <laughs> there was no reading between the lines on that one. Ray needs a job. Nick needs someone to help him out doing a little investigating. And it's going to be a challenge for Ray. He's, he seems to be up for it. But the trick is, Adam's close with Sharon. And Ray doesn't want to lie to Sharon about anything he's doing with his investigation of Adam. Nick suggests it, just suggests not telling Sharon what he's doing, but doesn't pressure him. And, you know, I mean, Ray, Ray wants to trust Sharon. But still, Sharon is so close with Adam, she could so easily, by accident or on purpose, filter info to or from him. Um, I don't know. I guess maybe it could, it could be a good thing. It could be a bad thing. But Ray trusts Sharon. He tells her the truth about his job duties and what he's going to be doing. And Sharon seemed to be very happy with it. She was very turned on by it. Ray has gone from being her good guy cop to being a bad boy investigator. She says, fine, whichever way you want to play it. That's fine with me. But I'm worried about Ray here. Especially now that his apartment has been spoken for. Because I think there's a really good possibility that Ray could start doing surveillance on Adam and then end up getting a private eye full of Adam making the moves on Sharon. Ray is not going to want that apartment back after all of the work that Lola and Kyle have been putting into it. And by work, I mean getting sexy. <laughs> and also, you know, painting that accent wall. Cayenne red. My very first apartment, I painted a, a, a very similar red, dark red accent wall. Did not get my security deposit back. <laughs> Oh, they're so cute, though. I'm having a good time getting to know Kyle and Lola without Summer 
lurking in the background, wanting to throw a nail file under their whole hamster wheel of love. I think I think Kyle and Lola have been very adorable. It's adorable that as Kyle was listing his assets, he wanted to let Lola know he has a lot of good qualities, including the fact that he has all of the lines to Caddyshack memorized. Ah, oh, that won me over. Far more so than the wall painting and his bookshelf building attempt. Although in his defense, building modular furniture is hard. <laughs> the instructions are in a totally different, like, alien language. And they didn't even give him enough screws in the box. So I'm willing to give him a pass on his horrible bookshelf, bookshelf building skills. Don't worry, Kyle. Lola will take care of that anyway. She busted out the power tools, and she was able to put that bookshelf together in a happened to be in about the exact length of time it took us to have a commercial break. Jack asks Lauren out for a drink this week, and Lauren turns down dinner with Michael in order to do it. Now, actually, Lauren had agreed to meet Jack for a drink prior to Michael suggesting dinner. But I'm trying to find out where everyone's head is. What was Jack thinking? Because there was this little moment uh, where he had an opportunity to call Claire. I think he was reeling over everything that had happened with his family and his mother, and he's looking at Claire's business card, wanting to give her a call, almost does it, but then changes his mind at the last minute and calls Lauren instead. Now, Jack knows that Lauren is married. I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt and assume that he's not in any way trying to hit on her. So the only other frame of mind that I can imagine for him right now is that he's thinking, I need to lean on someone and I don't want it to be a woman that I don't know because that would maybe create some extra dependencies and a relationship that I don't need right now. So maybe I'll just lean on a friend instead. Lauren had already been brought up to speed on everything that was going on with Dina. So I'm going to assume that's what he was thinking. I'm going to assume that Michael had no problem with Lauren going. It's a business meeting. I mean, she's a high-powered businesswoman. So at this point, I think everybody's kind of still in business and friendship territory, probably except for Phyllis, who is the enemy on the outside of that. Lauren scolded Phyllis early in the week for trying to open up on the shady on the shady download trying to open up a shell corporation. Oh yeah, that's right. By the way, Michael told her all about it. <laughs> and then while Ashley was in town this week, she showed Jack a copy of this JCV knockoff website that is selling similar products to Jabot's. And Ashley was speculating that it was a Chinese knockoff site because it's been filtered through all of these different places online. And But of course, Ashley and, and Jack have no idea that it's actually Phyllis. It left Jack scrambling to try to come up with a solution. I mean, if Ashley knows about it, then it must potentially be a really big problem on their horizon. So Jack and Kyle and Billy start trying to find out who could be behind it all. And believe me, the irony is not lost on me that Billy is the one who gave Phyllis the seed money to start this little project. Billy is, in effect, paying for the pleasure of watching Phyllis pull this power move uh, on his family company. But it was Lauren who really put all of the pieces together because of what Michael had told her and because of what she's experienced in her friendship with Phyllis. So when Lauren finds out 
what Phyllis is up to, what's going on. Lauren got up in Phyllis's face in the most delicious of spicy, like dominant, redheaded ways. It was amazing. I mean, Lauren made Phyllis quake in her seat in a way that I've never seen Phyllis quake before. It was great. Like Lauren's eyes were all bloodshot and she just looked Phyllis dead in the face and said, shut it down. You have 12 hours. I am loving this more assertive version of Lauren. Now, Phyllis tried to argue that she was only planning to run this JCV knockoff scam for a few weeks, which is true because we saw her having a business meeting with some guy and she was saying pretty much the same thing. But she is apparently just wanting to run this scam long enough so that she can get enough seed money to start a totally different project. So what's that project gonna be. Jack was sniffing around Phyllis before all of this had happened to try to find out if she was the one who was behind it. It was Jack's first instinct that Phyllis could be the duplicitous person behind this scam. And so he tries to confront her, asks what she's looking, you know, what her new project is, what she's working on. And she shows him a demo, I guess, for another website that she's been working on, and it's on her tablet. It is apparently a tech consulting firm. So is she just running this little scam long enough so that she can actually start that tech consulting firm, or is that a total ruse? See, I'm trying also to tie this in with our preview for next week, which I am very, very, very intrigued by. So... The preview that we saw on Friday showed us Adam telling Phyllis privately in the tack house that he wants to set this town on fire and asks Phyllis if she wants to light the match. So if Adam is trying to find Chloe then he might want to hire the services of a tech company like Phyllis's. And where Chloe is, then I'm imagining that Kevin is not too far behind. So, hmm, I'm wondering if Phyllis will help Adam find Chloe and Kevin. And then eventually down the road, maybe Phyllis will provide Kevin with a job working at her tech company when he inevitably decides to stick around. Either way, I can see the battle lines forming. It's Phyllis, maybe Kevin, maybe Adam, versus Lauren and Jack. And who's stuck in the middle? Poor, lonely peacekeeper Michael, caught in the middle of madness once again. In reality, Alzheimer's only has one possible ending. But in a soap opera, every story needs an ending. I admire Mal Young for daring to tell this story in the first place, but it's a shame that we couldn't have cultivated Dina's character to become a full-time matriarch on the show. I think the show really needs that, and she would have been the perfect person to fill that place. So I mourn that. Um, but I'm also just so glad to know that Dina's going to be getting the care that she needs. It was heartbreaking. She resisted the idea of being taken to the nursing home. She even ran away again, which just reinforces the fact that she needs to be in a home. It's just another example of how the Abbots cannot properly care for her. 
although bless their hearts, they tried. Jack and Ashley and Tracy picked out a really lovely care facility for her. They have a beautiful garden there and lots of music and Tessa even agreed to play there on occasion so that Dina could continue to enjoy her music. Honestly, it sounds like this is going to be a better situation for Dina. Uh, but I mean, I was with it. I was, I was feeling all of the emotions that were happening, all of the, the children's emotions and Dina's emotions. And I was gut punched when she said to them, well, what if they don't like me? Oh, they're going to like you, Dina. I know they're going to like you. Dina's going to be ruling that roost in no time at all. Don't even worry about her. And it will give her a chance to socialize and be seen in all of her fabulous clothes and jewels and have everybody else drooling over her pretty things. And who knows, maybe even Dina will be there pinching a few butt cheeks, Catherine Chancellor style while she's there. Neil Winters was organized. He was really, really on top of things. He had the foresight not only to put together a will, which a lot of people do not do, but he had the foresight to leave little tokens of appreciation for all of the people who touched him in his life. And he even updated his will just a few months before he died, presumably right around the time when he was dating Ashley because he left a half a million dollar donation to an Alzheimer's research charity of her choice. How relevant! I mean, is that an otherworldly coincidence or what? $500 million for Alzheimer's research on the same day that Dina goes into a care facility. Ah! <sighs> well, the majority of Neil's will left money to Lily and to his grandkids and then sentimental items to his loved ones. He left his personal Bible and also Catherine Chancellor's Atlas to Nikki. He left a very, I'm sure, expensive box of cigars to Victor to enjoy and appreciate. And, of course, that Newman Enterprises nameplate that almost made me cry. Oh, that got me. And Neil left the Abbott Winters Foundation in Jack's capable hands. He also left a, a, a sentimental record to go to Ashley, his entire record collection to go to Anna. And he left a box of Drew's jewels to Sharon. And I, I, at first I thought it was so very odd that she was there. I wasn't expecting that. And then I remembered that she was Drusilla's best friend. And I think it's lovely that he had the foresight to include her. What a wonderful man. But there were two bequeathments. Is that a word? <laughs> There were two bequeathments that were extra significant to me, so I want to make sure to fo focus on those. Number one, to Kane, Neil bequeathed his forgiveness. Kane's face. <laughs> I screen capped it. I'm sorry, but can you even imagine your former father-in-law dies? He makes you drive all the way down to the reading of his will to sit uncomfortably in the room with the rest of the former family. And maybe even maybe he makes you speculate for just a, a millisecond that maybe he was going to leave you a sports car or something. And then the lawyer reads out that all he left you was his forgiveness. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks a million. I mean, look, I'm not saying that Kane deserved anything more or less. I'm just saying Thanks, drama. The most significant bequeathment, though, was Devon's. Because from where I'm sitting, all Neil did was leave Devon a big old headache. 
Devon can have ha- hit Neil's half of Hamilton Winters. But only as long as he abides by two stipulations. Now, in reverse order, one of them. He has to give young up-and-comers a chance within the company, which is basically just YNR's way of handing Anna uh, uh, the co-ownership of LP, a brand new position. Yay! Can't wait to see which artist she bullies next. But... Also, as a condition of his full ownership over Hamilton Winters, Devon has to agree to give Nate a seat on the board of directors. Devon will still remain chairman of the board, and of course he would have the ownership, but he has to give Nate a seat on the board. Why again? Why? Oh, to create some drama for the Winters family in the future? Okay, okay, that's it. I mean, I just found that part... Annoying. And it's so transparent. We're just setting up some future clash points between Devon and Nate. Over the company of which Nate has absolutely no knowledge. Nate's a doctor. And now Devon's going to have to dance around him to get his business done? Nate already inherited the penthouse free and clear. And what did Devon really get besides a future headache dealing with Nick? Er, Nick, Nate! <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, I just, I was disappointed in what was left to Devon. Where was Devon's fairy tale book? Where was Devon's box of cigars? Where was the, the Bible for Devon? I mean, just, Devon is the one who had to walk up those stairs and find Neil passed away. More than anyone, I would think that Devon could have used a little token of remembrance from his father that didn't come with strings attached. Kane signs the divorce papers right before going to the reading of Neil's will. And of course, Lily is at the reading. She's sitting in the same room as Kane, listening to her father bequeath Kane some forgiveness. And Kane, he seemed to be really touched by Neil, including him. Kane took it as a piece of advice, not as a slight, which is how I would have taken it. Honestly, calling me out in front of a room full of people from beyond the grave. I'd have got my car, gone home, ate a gallon of ice cream, and cursed his name. <laughs> oh, I'd have been so ticked off. Honestly, kind of ticked off and annoyed with Lily, surprisingly. For, like, after the reading of the will, Lily approached Kane, who admittedly was hanging around a little too long in the background, clearly wanting to have some kind of interaction with her. But she made the point of saying to him, Hey, uh, I know that my dad forgave you, but I hope that doesn't give you any false hope for our relationship in the future. I still want the divorce. I was like, yeah, okay, Lily, he's got it. You know, you don't want him. He signed the divorce papers. Your dad just gave him the big F you, as in forgive you. (laughs) You don't need to follow it up. Let him be. So how you doing, by the way, girl? I'm helping former prisoners get jobs. And Tracy's writing a novel about me. Maybe I'll be shirtless on the cover. I don't know. (laughs) Uh, Well, after Kane had signed the divorce papers and after the reading of the will, he decides to take off his wedding ring and then he calls Tracy. I asked you guys in a poll question last week if you could get down with a train romance, Tracy and Kane romance. Uh, Let's see, it was 79% of you said, uh, nope. (laughs) Nope to Tracy and Kane. I just cannot get into it. Only 21% said, sure, why not? I'm in. Ah, I'm heartbroken, you guys. Well, but I guess the chatters have spoken. It's a big nope for train, for the train train. I guess I'll just back that train back up into the station. 
Choo-choo. You know I'm all about Devon these days, but eating sliced fruit with your bare fingers is just barbaric. <laughs> Ugh. I'm just kidding though. No, nah, I'm just kidding. It is a terrible idea though. I mean, you're going to be left with like all that sticky juice on your fingers. Why not just use a fork? I guess it's less sexy that way. I don't know. I suppose there is something intimate about Devon and Elena sharing those fruit juices together. <laughs> oh, I mean, it was fun. What was actually really quite moving was the jazz and dancing sequence between Devon and Elena this week. I thought the actors did a really excellent job delivering those scenes in a way that matched the pace of the music that was being played in the background. Devon was playing music on the record player and it was slow and sensual and effortless and they come into a dance together that seemed just somehow to flow exactly in that same way until Devon saw a vision of Hillary standing on the staircase wearing all white looking completely blank like vacant. I was searching on her face to try to find some meaning, but there was absolutely nothing there. She didn't look angry or disappointed in him, but she also didn't look particularly approving either. I don't know. I felt really bad for Elena because Devon didn't really explain what was happening, what he was seeing. He just got this look on his face that was shocked and then he pulled away. Everything came became kind of confused and Elena just ran up the stairs mortified. So I don't know what's going to happen to Devon now. Is he going to continue to speak to Hillary? Will he talk to Hillary actually? I mean, this is all in his mind, of course, but I'm wondering if he will have another interaction with her where maybe she does speak and maybe she does give him some peace and some permission to actually move on with her blessing. Friday's episode was so sexy. The episode ended with practically everyone on screen getting down. I mean, actually, now that I think about it, the entire week was very sexy. There was just sex, sex, sex all week, especially on Friday. I don't think any of the stories didn't end with sex. <laughs> but including, I think maybe for the first time, Tessa and Mariah. Was this Tessa and Mariah's first ever sex scene? Because we've seen them kiss a lot. We've seen them embrace a lot, but I don't know if we've ever seen them get quite so steamy in the past. Um, this week, Mariah was the one trying to get the fashion show from Tessa. Last week, Tessa was doing her little dance in front of Anna. And now this week, Tessa was doing her little dance in front of Mariah. I can't help but feel like that was a little bit of foreshadowing there. Tessa and Mariah both agree, though, that Anna and that whole experience did give them one good idea, that Tessa needs to come up with a new style for herself, which matches her music in a way that makes her feel comfortable and that actually can help promote her brand. I think Tessa definitely has style. She has sort of a 90s girl style. I, I decided to kind of wear a similar look this week myself because Tessa does seem to have almost a Winona Ryder 1990s sort of essence about her. I, she always wears maybe a funky blazer or and she always has a bright lick. I th lip. I think that Tessa very much has a style already so I don't quite know what they're talking about. I think she's got it covered. Um, she was able to wear very fashionable clothes even when she didn't have any money. 
But I'm also wondering um, if what this is doing is setting Mariah up to maybe quit her job at GC Buzz and become Tessa's manager and producer instead. Maybe Devon will offer to transition Mariah to a different part of his business from GC Buzz over to LP, where Anna is now a co-head. Maybe that's the direction. Maybe they're just going to make Mariah, an official business rival for Anna, in addition to a personal rival for, for Anna. I don't know. I am just disappointed as hell that it seems YNR might just let that entire stalker storyline fizzle out. They built that up for weeks, and then the stalker finally shows up, and Tess is just able to shoo him away with a newspaper? <sighs> They're even presenting it now, like as if the stalker even did Mariah a favor in the end. Because Mariah says to Sharon, you know, Jerry got me thinking, or whatever his name is. She called him by name, you know, Jerry got me thinking. Maybe I should do something different with my life. Maybe I should get out of the gossip game and try something new. You've got to be kidding me. If YNR started this stalker storyline just to give Tessa a new job, I'm going to be ticked. You're going to have to start committing to some stories here, boys. Do not get me all excited for a celebrity stalking just to be used as an excuse for Mariah to work at LP so that she can go bump heads with Anna and then form a love triangle. Although I guess that would be okay. Mariah and Anna competing in business and then competing for Tessa's affection. I mean, that's you, That's where you know it's going and I'm fine with it. All I'm saying is pick a direction and stick with it so I can lean in and get lost in the fun of it all. Where I am having trouble getting lost in the fun of it all is with Abby and Nate. Abby and Nate had their first official date this week, followed by Abby giving Nate the teeniest, tiniest little peck on the cheek at the end. And I'm just kind of having trouble really, really sinking my teeth into this couple. And I think it's maybe for a couple of reasons. Number one, I'm not a big Abby fan. I've never tried to hide it. She just doesn't move me. So pairing her with an all-new Nate, who might as well be an all-new character, it just kind of feels like, okay, attractive person number one flirts with attractive person number two. It just doesn't, I'm not saying that there's not physical chemistry between them, but I don't feel like there's a hook. Like neither one of them have enough of a great personality to really pull me into wanting them as a couple. And also number two, Abby just seems to be trying so hard to convince herself that she's ready to date again while Nate almost seems to be in love with her already. He said something like, well, I just felt like you were worth the risk. That just seems a little forward. You don't really know her. So I'm not sure. I'm going to leave it in your hands this week, Wyanart Chatters. Why don't you convince me to fall in love with Abby and Nate? Tell me why I should care about this couple. Give me some good reasons, and I will take it all into consideration, and I will read out your comments next week. I'm super stubborn and can be a little annoying. Who said it? Why, the answer is Lola. Lola said it to Kyle, uh, commenting on how she would win if things ever went awry with their little living situation and they decided to go at it in a War of the Roses style dispute. I think I picked this quote though specifically because Lola referenced the War of the Roses, which is my all-time 
favorite film. It's uh, 1989, based on a book, but uh, I've never read the book. I've only seen the film. Kathleen Turner, Michael Douglas, Danny DeVito, DeVito, who also directed that film. It is it is perfection on every level. It is a dark, dark, dark comedy. Uh, so I don't know if it's everyone's cup of tea. My mother does not like the film, but it is my favorite. It is a masterpiece, if you ask me. So if you have a couple spare uh, hours this weekend or maybe next week. Pick that up. I'm sure you can find it. It's just excellent, excellent. Uh, it's just got everything. It's got drama and it's funny and it's just so, it's well filmed that just, I mean, look at the lighting and the frames and just everything about that, uh, that film is just incredible. Kathleen Turner is the bomb. And that, that magic little era of time where she and Michael Douglas just had that heat Ooh, I mean, we were talking a little bit about that heat uh, with, um, uh, like, that love-hate relationship, that sort of moonlighting or bogey and bacall. There's that, that was a that was a moment. That was a real '80s moment. Kathleen Turner and Michael Douglas. Okay, I'm going on and up, but it was my favorite film, and I just wanted to use that as an excuse to talk about it a little bit. The answer was indeed Lola, and a lot of people guessed it right. It was Maria Keisha Lynn. Henry, Daya, Anna, Janice, Joanne, Gary, Sheila, Jamie, Sandra, T. Nicole, Justin, Sherry, Heather, and Diana. Congratulations, you guys all guessed it right now. Let's see if you can do it again. You're the big bad wolf. Who said it? You're the big bad wolf. If you think you know, go to yrchat.com and leave your guess. If you get it right, I'll give you your shout out on next week's YNR Chat. Oh, let's read your comments now, starting with Heather. Heather says, most of my peers haven't experienced moving a parent to a home yet. So stories like Tracy Ashley crying as Dina moved to her facility, then talking with Jack, feeling that inexplicable life will never be the same moment, somehow made me feel less alone. The Dina scenes this week were soap opera at its finest. Also a tip, if anyone has any musical or entertaining talent at all, please consider volunteering with your local senior center. That means the world to residents and their families. What a wonderful comment, Heather. It sounds like that's something that you have personal experience with. So it's wonderful to hear from someone who can per connect in personally with this storyline. I agree. It was a very difficult week. It was very heart-wrenching. I don't have a loved one who is in a home. I um, only feel it from a sense of just you know, loving the Dina character. But I also really like your tip about going to visit senior care centers. I think we always end up putting so much emphasis on children and animals, and sometimes it does feel like seniors really do need care, and it just seems like sometimes there just aren't enough people who are clamoring to go to senior facilities and to spread a little bit of sunshine. So it really takes a special person, I think, to work in senior care and even also in hospitals. It's just, it's the, the non-fun stage of life, the end. And so, yes, um, just a little bit of sunshine would certainly help them. So that's that's wonderful comment. Sandra says, well, that was a gut punch hearing Dina's cries of protest. Oh, Wow. I found the scenes with Dina and the Abbots painful. Jack and his siblings did right by Dina, though, even though it killed them to put her in a facility. TB84 says, I loved Tuesday's episode because it was bittersweet. It was very sad at some point that the Abbots got to deal with Dina's situation and saying goodbye, but from the bright side, it was filled with hope and peace at the same time. Not to mention Tessa's help. I got teary-eyed. Sorry, but I marked that as one of the most touching moments after Neil and Kristoff's goodbye this year. Yeah, Tuesday. It was a good episode. I really liked the way that Tessa was incorporated into it. Also, I got to agree uh, with Gary, who left a reply on that comment from TB84, saying that it was also kind of a good break from Adam. Adam has been forefront of most of these shows, and that was an Adamless episode, and I noticed that too. It, it felt like a totally different pace, and... Um, 
it was almost, even though it was sad, it was welcome to just see and experience something else. It was very touching. T. Nicole says, I really loved that Tessa continued to still sing in Chancellor Park and to perform because just because she loves to sing and to do it her way and what feels right for her. I know, it is interesting that Tessa went from having this opportunity to have a record career and it didn't work out for her and instead of deciding to stop singing or stop trying, she just went back to what she knew and I think we're going to see her just rebuild herself back up in a way that's right for her. Heather says, finally, after two years since their first kiss, one year since their first date, Tessa and Mariah became the first female same-sex couple in CBS daytime history to have a love scene. I'm very happy for everyone involved in making this important milestone happen. The girls have been through so much, and it was such a long time coming. Well, there you go. I was wondering if this was their first lovemaking scene. There was something about it that it, it, it definitely caught my attention as seeming like we hadn't seen it before. So that's our confirmation. Oh, let's talk about uh, Kyle and Lola. This actually is a great joke from Gary because on the episode where Kyle was building the bookshelf and telling Lola that he has a whole lot of skills, he just, you know, maybe building the bookshelf isn't one of them. Uh, Gary says, well, after Kyle lists his skills for Lola above and beyond uh, bookshelf building, uh, maybe something that uh, something else that Kyle does well is grave digging. Yes! I love that comment, Gary. That is That made me laugh out loud. Uh, he's listing his skills, and he should have included grave digging among them. Laura says, Lauren was spicy today. Ooh, that fierce personality suits her. I want to see more of that side of her character. Harkens back to her youth when she stirred things up all over town. I liked that version of Lauren, too. I'm very excited that YNR seems to be pushing her into the forefront, and Michael, too. Connor says, food for thought. What if Kane and Phyllis paired up? Not to say I'm feeling Tracy and Kane's developing romance. Or, sorry, not to say I'm not feeling Tracy and Kane's developing romance. But Kane and Phyllis would be extraordinary. Both seem to be searching for purpose at the moment. Why not hook them up and see where it goes? You know me, I'm all for anything. I'm all for where anything goes. I think Phyllis's heart is going to be spoken for. I think they're just going to ultimately pair her back up with Jack. Well, I have to say, even though the majority of voters did not care for the Tracy and Kane train, the majority of commenters were for it, starting with Shakona saying, A big yes! to Tracy Kane. It's unexplored territory. I want to see the not-your-typical-love interest get some, too. And I don't want it to be one-sided, either. Shakona, that's what I'm worried about. I am just worried that in the end, this is all one-sided from Tracy. Because even though Kane has expressed his interest in Tracy as a friend, uh, we haven't seen him having any kind of sexual thoughts about her. So that's what worries me a little bit. We know... For sure, the Casey's, Tracy's finding herself attracted to Kane, but we don't know that from Kane's end yet anyway. Susan says, at first I thought, um, no and ew <laughs> to Tracy and Kane. But after giving it more thought, I realized that Tracy should have a love interest, and why not Kane? The two actors are actually only 13 years apart in age. When I discovered that Tracy isn't that much older than Kane, I started researching and find, found out that when Ashley was sleeping with Ravi, those two actors are 30 years apart in age. And the actors that played Jack and Carrie are 35 years apart in age. But for some reason, Tracy just seems more like a mother figure to Kane. I think it's the way they dress her and always have her doing the responsible thing. Maybe Tracy would loosen up a bit if she were to get with Kane. I think he's a fine-looking man. <laughs> Thank you so much for doing that research, Susan. There's only 13 years between them. I mean, and then when you stack that up against these other examples, yeah, it doesn't seem like that big of a deal. 
Anna says, I voted no, and it has nothing to do with the age difference, or that Kane is supposedly too hot for Tracy. Kane does nothing for me, but I might be in the minority there. Uh, Anna, Anna says, it is due to the fact that I'd rather see Tracy with someone who's not such a lying snake. <laughs> Tracy deserves someone who deserves her. I know Kane has certainly had his past. <laughs> not as bad as some of the other characters though I feel like Billy's been worse maybe I feel like Adam's been worse Kane's done some bad stuff though but I want to give him a chance to change and plus I just love him and his tight pants <laughs> Astra says I voted no I can't get into them as a couple I get more of a brother-sister vibe from them than romance. I'd prefer if they just stayed friends. Plus, I like—I feel like Kane is just rebounding from Lily, and Tracy deserves better than that. I Yes, I, I Tracy is a do-gooder, and it's a question of whether or not she'll be able to rub <laughs> some of that do-gooding off on him. <laughs> Janice says yes to train, even if it's all in Tracy's mind, and she ends up it ends up giving her some confidence and joy. Well, there's a nice thought that even if it goes nowhere, this gives her confidence and joy. Oh, I love that. Maybe that is where Wyanor is going. Part of me just doesn't believe they're gonna make it a reality. Daisy says, I really like Tracy's stories. I'd love to see what stories she'd come up with for Chelsea and Adam. I hope they continue to expand this, though. It's a cute addition. Ooh, Daisy, I think this is a great idea, using Tracy's writing as a framework to tell other tales about other couples and characters. That would be a really fun plot device that would allow us the opportunity to do some things outside of the continuity of the show. That's a great idea. YNR will not do it. <laughs> it's too good for them. It's too good of an idea. I've, le I've learned. From, from reading all of your amazing ideas, I realized that YNR would never have thought of it. They, it's like they should crowdsource some storyline ideas. That's what they should do. And they won't. <laughs> we're, just, we're just a little too ahead of them, I think, here. Let's jump over to Sharon and Adam. Lauren, Laura says, Sharon talks a sweet game, but underneath, it's not so nice. She actually defended Adam today when Ray told her that he wanted Christian. Course correction, my butt. Ugh. Moving Ray in so fast after they started dating. Ugh. Sharon chose the men over her children. Ooh. Well, I love your point, Laura, because I'm wondering myself, why isn't Sharon talking to Adam about his, what he's doing to Nick? She should have an extra special connection with Christian, considering she thought he was Sully. She thought that kid was hers at a point. I guess, you know, I don't know if she's just feeling like, well, everybody has raised that boy. I guess we got to give Adam his turn, too. But Sharon is supposed to have a very con special connection with the child, wanted Nick to raise him. So why isn't she standing up against what Adam is suggesting? Or does she agree with it? Does she think that Adam needs to have that custody? It's a pretty big issue that's sitting on the table that, that Sharon has somehow managed to dance around. She's going to have to pick a side on that eventually. Mm -hmm. T. Nicole says, does anyone else feel that Adam is manipulating and using Sharon, that that's started? I'm confused as to why Adam needed Sharon to call Chelsea for him. Why is Sharon viewed as the only one who could have helped him? How the character of Adam was left off by him running away with Chelsea and Connor, I would have thought that he would not have hesitated to get in contact with her and reach out. Couldn't Adam share the details that only he and Chelsea would know as proof that it's him that he's alive? Something about it seems odd. To use your old love, Sharon, to help track down his most recent love up to the cabin explosion, Chelsea. Maybe it's because I get the vibe from that Sharon's feelings for Adam have resurfaced after seeing him alive, and Adam may recognize that and use those feelings to his advantage. Hmm. That's what I think, too. I think Sharon's a fool. I think she's being used. And I worry about her. I don't trust new Adam. 
who at this point, I don't, it's like part of me doesn't really, I, I have to just not think about him as Adam. I really do because I'm not making that connection uh, as to why he's doing some of the things he's doing either. It just doesn't feel consistent with the previous version. So I suppose I should just wipe that slate clean and just just go with the, what we've got. New guy. I almost kind of wish they just would have brought him on as a totally different character. I mean, the actor's not bad. It's just not not hitting with me in into my memories of Adam. But I'm, I'm still trying. Ellen says, wouldn't it be all over the news that Adam Newman Jr. is alive? Wouldn't Chelsea know by now? No one needs to track her down. She should be on the ranch with Connor in tow. Yeah. Victor Newman Jr. is his name, I think. Um, but yeah, yeah. All of this should have been all over the news. Maybe she does know. Who knows? Daisy says it's hard to believe that Chelsea snuck out of Nick's life and then called him and left her phone number. I don't remember an explanation discussed by Nick or anyone. Makes me wonder if Chelsea left after someone alerted her that Adam was alive. Amnesia or not, maybe they saw each other, reconnected. Then instead of staying hidden, together they forged a plan to get money from the Newmans. And because Chelsea misses and regrets leaving Christian... They decided to go get him, too. Chelsea was a grifter for a long time. I don't think plotting something big would be a stretch for her or Adam, for that matter. Yeah. Yeah, I know. It's a, When are we going to see Chelsea? It's, it's a big question as to whether or not she's in on it. And I wouldn't be surprised if she is in on it. Anna says... I only have one thing to say. Nick Newman's phone isn't password protected. Are you freaking kidding me? <laughs> Gary says, Victoria is a paranoid idiot. What in the world is she doing Adam's business for? When you give someone $50 million to just go away, what do you do when they pop back up next week? What legal leg do you have to stand on? <laughs> yeah, I agree with Anna and Gary here. It's, Victoria's dumb. It's dumb, and Victoria's proud of herself over all of it. She handed it, she's ready to hand him cash, gave, just handed him Chelsea's phone number, and she's proud of herself about it. Like, she gave him to one and a half of his demands, then pats herself on the back and goes home to make out with Billy. I am not seeing the brilliance of Victoria's move here. Justin says, I know it may seem weird or out of nowhere that Esther was shocked and even frightened to see Adam, but let me remind everyone that Delia was Esther's granddaughter. Esther came face to face with the man that killed her granddaughter. Yes, Justin, and also um, Esther's daughter is Chloe, the person who was presumed to kill Adam and who is also currently presumed dead herself. And I think that Superplex is right that Esther is the one who shot Adam. Gary says, Kate Linder will be able to feed off of the glory of all of this in the press interviews till the end of her days, and she will. No longer will she have to say my greatest moment was giving birth to Tiny's daughter on the Chancellor's stairs. She's got something very 2000s to crow about. <laughs> I was thinking the same thing too, Gary, that Kate Linder is loving this. If she's the one that shot Adam, she's loving this. I, th I thought she was very good this week, actually. I, it's, it's almost like she's grown on me. When they got her out of the maid's uniform, um, I, I, my like of her just skyrocketed leaps and bounds. Ellen says, why does Genoa City look like Gotham City now? That opening shot of the city skyline was dark and moody. I guess that means Adam is our GC Batman. I noticed that opening uh, night shot, too. It was not the Genoa City makeout point Billy and Victoria uh, scene. There was a, The opening scene on one of the episodes was very dark and moody. I wonder if that's how the show is going to be now that we've got our dark and moody new Adam. He was always kind of moody. 
Well, one thing that I didn't mention yet this week are Victor's test results. I mean, there really wasn't a whole lot of movement of that. We saw the preview of it last week, and that pretty much covered it. Victor gets some test results from Nate, makes it sound like he has an affliction, uh, and uh, you know that there's some kind of bad news in these reports that they have to fight, but doesn't mention who exactly the test results were about. I think that's what our what our point is here. Superplex says, was Dr. Nate referring to Victor or was he referring to Adam? That's the question. Sandra says, I think it's Adam. Something showed up in his blood work at the hospital and Nate picked up on it. They're going to formulate a plan of action to treat Adam and then tell him what was found. This is all speculation, of course, but Eric Braden did say that when Victor would return full-time on screen after all his business trips and searching for Spider, that the story would be epic. See, I'm leaning toward that too, Sandra, thinking that Victor knows that Adam is sick and that is somehow going to be used to garner a little bit of sympathy for him now that he is so very clearly on the dark side. But Jinxie says, I suddenly thought, maybe Victor needs a kidney and Adam's the only one who's a match. And that's why Victor's doing everything he can to make Adam stay around. Or is it the opposite? If Adam's that sick, maybe he needs a donor. And that's why he's so desperate to gain custody of his sons. Ew. Well, you do bring up a good question, Jinxie, because what exactly is Victor's motivation for trying so hard to keep Adam around, despite all of the kind of yucky things that he's already been doing? So that's an interesting idea. Maybe Victor is the one that's sick and he needs Adam to help him. Uh, that's a possibility. Maybe he's talking to Dr. Nate behind that, the scenes about that. So it could be Victor. It could be Adam. But here is another idea from Zoberplex. Maybe they could have been talking about Nikki. I think that's it's possible, Zoberplex, too. I mean, you, you say that you doubt it, but um, Nate is Nikki's personal physician, and she doesn't really currently have a major story. And we did see in the previews, for next week that uh, Nikki is questioning Victor and trying to find out about uh, what the medical condition is and trying to get him to confide in her. And and yeah, I mean, she's finally following up probably about the, I don't know, about everything. I'm not sure. You know, it's just there's still a lot of questions that are not answered around Adam. Are we ever going to know if he really had amnesia? (laughs) That one's still bothering me. Or did they just use that as a one-week explanation to tell us why he didn't come back to Genoa City? Why he was alive and didn't come back? I'm not sure. But speaking of Nikki, Keisha says... Nikki Reed Foster Bancroft Newman Abbott Landers Newman Newman Chow Sharp Abbott Newman worried about Sharon's tween daughter being around so many men. It was okay when Nick was tossing women out of his bed, but Sharon should be ashamed. Please. <laughs> Good one, Keisha. Nikki was particularly fierce with Sharon. This week, it's all the time. I, they, I think it's fun though. That's the thing. It's 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 unnecessary. Nikki is unnecessarily mean to Sharon. It's a little fun to watch though on the screen because I know that the two actresses are really good friends in real life. So I wonder if they give it a little extra oomph just because they like each other so much that they can just really let it rip and play the opposite on screen. I don't know. It's it's it's. It is a little a little cringeworthy, though. I, I will give it that. But yeah, no kidding. Uh, pot calling the kettle black. All right, everybody. That is a wrap for me. But now it's your turn to comment back. Go to yrchat.com, vote in our polls, leave some comments. I do love hearing from you. I'm going to collate everything. Bring all of your thoughts back for next week, and we'll have a whole nother why in our chat next Sunday, okay? Deal? Deal. <laughs> I love you guys. Have a wonderful week. Bye.